these two weeks, my topic has been identity and identitylessness, which is a long word. And last week, we had a good time with identity. So I want to begin with a quote from uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my dear teachers. There is a momentous difference between being identified with a thought or an emotion and the spaciousness of a mind that simply sees those thoughts and emotions arise and pass away in the open sky of awareness. So this is a little bridge for all of you. So last week, what we did was I started with a definition of identity from the dictionary and, identity, uh, and a definition of self. One of the definitions of self in the dictionary is a very Buddhist definition of self. It's the union of elements that constitute the individuality and identity of a person. So actually, self was a term that the dictionary was using to describe identity. So last week, we explored the territory of lots of the labels that we all use that we think of when we think of who we are, you know, the basic categories, race, gender, work. It was a really nice discussion. And in the end, I think where we got to was that these are fungible categories, and sometimes we identify with them, and sometimes we don't. And over our lifespan, some of the ways we've identified with, for instance, of being an income generator or having a job or who you are, that's also shifted. So we ended in a place of agreement that identity is a process. It's not fixed, even though in our minds it actually often feels very fixed. So this is where I'm going to start tonight is from this bridge. And then we're going to go into identitylessness by way of the bridge. So just as Joseph was saying that there is a difference between being identified with a thought or emotion and the spaciousness of the mind that recognizes the thought and emotion, the same can be said of identifying with the myriad forms of I-ness. So that's I with an S. The myriad forms of I-ness each of us relies upon in our daily lives. So tonight we're really going to come at this phenomenologically, and that means we're going to look at the actuality of it, the actual phenomenal, the, the phenomenal um, expression of identity. Okay? So I want to read you a quote from a book called The Buddhist Unconscious. It's a phenomenal book that was written in 2002 by a Buddhist scholar named William Waldron. By portraying an individual as a continuous stream of psychophysical processes which arise and cease depending upon the causes and conditions, the Buddha declared that it is neither the exact same person nor a completely different person who experiences. 
just as one cannot step into exactly the same river twice, since the flowing water is always changing from one moment to the next, so too are we never exactly the same person because the conditions and processes which constitute our lives are also always changing from moment to moment. On the other hand, neither are we completely different because like the stream whose currents fall into consistent patterns, depending upon the consistency of their supporting conditions, so too the continuity of individual mind streams depends upon the continuity of their causes and conditions. Thus, even if we are never exactly the same person we were a moment ago, or last week, or last year, or last lifetime, neither are we wholly different. Rather, what we are is the continuously evolving result of a multitude of past actions whose heirs we are. So this is a very profound set of thoughts that the author has put together. And what he's saying is something that if we truly recognize the phenomenology of, I mean the actuality of the fact that everything we've ever done prior to this moment is actually informing this moment. It's a collection of causes and conditions, some of which have remained the same, some of which don't remain the same. And one of the things that Professor Waldron has pointed to here is that our identity, the things we identify with as us, these are often the things that have not changed so much. They look as though they're continuous. Like, I've been in this body for over 55 and a half years. I have been in this body. It looks like this body is permanent. It looks like it's solid. It sort of feels like it too. But the actuality of it is, even on a biological level, I no longer have the same body I had when I was seven because supposedly every single one of my cells is completely different. So in, in that way, it's being held together, but it's not the same. And I have all kinds of breaks and bones and healings and this and that, and you know, this is not the same body. Even 10 years ago, it's not the same body. So things look like they continue, and they look like they're the same, yet they're different. But they're not completely different, yeah? And this is the territory we get to walk with identity. We are the same person, but we are not the same person. So we are fluid beings, and our identity is as fluid as the flow of phenomena. And this fluidity is the reality of the psyche. No matter how stuck or how fixed we might subjectively feel about the ways in which we internally define ourselves, 
we are actually not that stuck, fixed identity. It may be a very strong core belief that one holds on to. I have lots of patients who have a strong core belief in their innate badness. It's hard to imagine someone feeling at the core of themselves that they are innately broken. But I work with these people all the time. And when I tell them that they are not innately broken, it is impossible for them to be innately broken. That is phenomenologically impossible. Something inside them shifts because someone has stand, stood up and said to them, this is completely false. You have to look at your own mind and see the way your mind has been fooling you and tricking you. And then they get engaged, then they get interested. So it's a switch in identity. And how do we do this? We do this with self-knowing. And self-knowing has a very critical role in the process of liberation. Make no mistake about it. So to know ourselves as we truly are, which is a continuous stream of psychophysical processes which arise and cease depending upon the causes and conditions. That's who you really are. Just that. We must have the capacity to embody that which knows. In addition, real-time awareness of our internal and external responses to causes and conditions is the ideal way to recognize habitual dispositions, or what is known in Buddhist psychological terms as karmic tendencies. These are the habits of mind. And in Buddhism, depending on which school of Buddhism you happen to love, and be attracted to, there are different theories about how the habitual tendencies of mind came about, how they are stored in your psyche, how they get expressed, and where they go when you die. And I'm not going to go into that tonight. That actually is in my book, by the way. So you can read about it when it's out in April but we're not going there tonight. The thing about the habitual dispositions is if we can recognize them and avert their expression and any harm they may cause, then awareness actually becomes our best friend in the journey of skillfully and deliberately embodying who you wish to be. Awareness is the key. This means that awareness is the key to deliberately choosing how you show up in the world. Being fully awake and aware to what identity you or I or anybody else wishes to take on in any given situation. This is the very definition of skillfulness. Being awake and recognizing the habit emotions, the reactive responses as they arise in your mind 
recognizing them in their arisal, knowing them, and having what Joseph calls the spaciousness of mind to be able to be in their presence and then choose. All right, do I really want to express this difficult feeling that's arising in me right now? Is this what I want? Is this who I want to be? Is this how I want to show up in this moment? And the answer may be yes, you know, or the answer may be no. But now you have the space to choose. If you choose no, Buddhism is full of all kinds of wonderful antidotes and ways to avert such expressions of distressing, difficult, and negative emotions and thoughts. We have the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. We have mindfulness and mindful expression in the world. There's lots and lots and lots of tools that Buddhism offers. But it's impossible to use any of those tools if you're not aware of what's going arising in your mind. So again, awareness is the key to being a deliberate source of wise identity in this world. So any questions about anything I've said so far? So that's a great part of our work, is the awareness. That is the work. Yes. Is there any other work than awareness? Well, it's after what you do with the awareness, but to get to the awareness is a lot of work. To get to the awareness is a lot of work. Oh, I'm about to prove you wrong on that one tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that comes a little later. I know, it seems like a lot of work. Yes. The truth is, that innate luminosity of mind is there all the time. All the time. You don't have to do anything to make it happen. It's always there. It's basically learning what not to do. <laughs> to just let it be there. But we'll get there. The continual fluidity that we're talking about is not an identity to cling to. That is a Buddhist statement if I ever heard one, right? So here I've been sitting on this seat and I've been telling you that you are just a continuous flow of thoughts, feelings, emotions, phenomena. I've been telling you you're nothing more than this, yes? But I'm now saying that that continual fluidity is not an identity to cling to. Because if you cling to the fact that you're just this mass of phenomena, well, you're taking on an identity. You're taking birth in an identity. And that will stick you, too. That's not awareness. That's you saying you are something and staying there, and you're not actually recognizing what's true. This is like when you're on retreat, and you go to your meditation teacher, and you say to them, I had this incredible experience, and you go through the whole experience, and they look at you, and they go, well, just go back to the cushion. <laughs> it wasn't such a great experience. And even if it was, if you cling to it, then it loses all of its validity, because it will become something fixed in your mind that has nothing to do with the actual experience. If you had a memory of your first kiss, and it was the most amazing thing that ever happened to you. So the kiss happened at 16, okay. And you're 35, 
and you've woken up every morning, and the first thing you've done is you've remembered that first kiss. So there's another person who had an amazing first kiss at 16. Totally incredible. And they forgot about it, and now they're 35. It turns out, the person who kind of just forgot about it and didn't really remember it every day, if they suddenly remember, oh my gosh, I had this incredible kiss, the memory of the kiss is closer to the actuality of the actual kiss than the person who's remembered it every single day for 20 years. Why? Because now the person who's remembered it every day has just basically constructed this narrative, this self-narrative about what it was, and it has nothing to do with what the actual memory was. So what, uh, what happens, for instance, with something like PTSD, mm -hmm. where some memory is stored and you don't have access to it, and it shows up in ways that are... There are many opinions about memory, first of all, yeah. and about PTSD. What I will tell you is that the amygdala, this is the part of the brain where we generate fear, is right next to the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain which actually helps us store memory. But memory is stored all over the brain, but this is the place where we really process them. In traumatic experience, the timing mechanism in the hippocampus is completely awry. It, it doesn't really work because the amygdala is so over-activated. That's one of the reasons why memories of trauma don't get laid down the way you know, a memory would if you're not so activated. The brain process for laying down that memory is different yeah. than if you were just watching a beautiful sunset. Okay. And the other thing is that um, we have a body, and I know neurobiology often doesn't <laughs> take into account that there's a body here. But according to the research on how animals actually process trauma, um, when we have traumatic experience, especially high-impact injuries or very traumatic uh, physical injuries, a thousand things are happening in the, in the psychophysical system at once, and it's not possible for the brain to lay all that down at the same time. So a lot of it isn't laid down in a kind of memory that's accessible. Yeah, yeah but there are trauma therapies, like somatic experiencing in particular, where there is that capacity to actually slow the nervous system down enough that some of those memories do come up. Sorry, that was the right term. Was that helpful? Yeah. So, because continual fluidity is not an identity to cling to, it's actually the mark of identitylessness. And awareness is the only vehicle for recognizing inherent identitylessness. For awareness reveals the nature of mind the innate luminosity which is beyond all identities, the unconditioned awareness from within which all conditions and phenomena arise, exist, and pass away. One of my favorite Buddhist teachers, Anam Tupten, says, being undiluted, not undiluted, but undiluted, as opposed to delusion, undiluted, 
means the mind knowing itself and knowing that all internal and external phenomena and perceptions are the mind's own display. Yes, I will say that again. Undiluted meaning knowing things as they are. That was always the Buddha's definition for wisdom, is knowing things as they actually are. So when we know things as they are, we are undiluted. Even if what we know is delusion. If you recognize a deluded thought, you are undiluted, by the way. <laughs> Don't laugh, that's true. I mean, this, this, this is enlightenment. If you recognize delusion, you're undiluted. Yeah, you're awake. Okay, so undiluted means the mind knowing itself and knowing that all internal and external phenomena and perceptions are the mind's own display. Once the ocean of awareness recognizes that the waves are its own display, then it knows its true nature. Then it knows what? Its true nature. So this is the simple expression of awareness. This is why awareness is easy, because the waves and the ocean are not different. So delusion is actually non-delusion. It's the expression of the undiluted mind. It's the expression of unconditioned awareness. And even the Buddha in the, in the Pali text talks about unconditioned mind, unconditioned awareness. This, this is not something that showed up later. Even though it was, it was emphasized more later, it, the Buddha did talk about unconditioned mind. So our identity-lessness does not mean you don't have an identity. That's not what it means. Again, that's the nihilism that people often mistake Buddhism for. Buddhism is not nihilistic. Identitylessness means that there is no fixed identity. There is nothing set in stone. And we're so fortunate because we live in a time when neurobiology, where epigenetics, where all of our sciences tell us the same thing. Nothing is set in stone. Your genes will never change, but your, the expression of your genes is continually changing based on the causes and conditions. This is Buddhism 101, yeah? And the genes themselves, this is what Buddhism would call the karmic imprint. You can think of it that way. I, I recommended this in my book to people. Think of karmic imprint as your genetic code. If that helps you, think of it that way. You come in with a roadmap. That genetic code will not change. You can't change your genes. But you change the way your genes express in every moment depending upon your, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, the situation around you. Everything is fluid. If you rest in the fluidity of your identity, you're resting in identity-lessness. But it doesn't mean you don't have an identity. But don't cling to identity-lessness. <laughs> okay. 
How are you doing so far? Questions about what I've just said? Yes, go for it, Laura. Are you saying that witness consciousness is awareness? Mm. Am I saying that witness consciousness is awareness? Okay, my dear, please, can you define witness consciousness for us? Because that term means many things in many different traditions. So I'd love to know what it means for you, how you're using it. For me, it's a way of stepping back from my thoughts and my emotions and seeing things as they are in a way that's somewhat detached, really, from um, any kind of reactivity. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is the witness for you is an intentional stepping back. Yes. Something arises and you intentionally create a space between you and it. Yes? And you observe. You're observing that phenomena. For you, that has a quality of detachment. Oddly enough, it, it, there's a detachment in the sense of, of um, a kind of uh, you know, conventional engagement. Mm-hmm. But, but it is also a completely embracing presence. Yes. Okay, I love this. So this is why nihilism and Buddhism don't go together. Because... It's unconventional, and yet it's completely holding. Who else has had this experience? Raise your hands. So you're experiencing something. It's happening. You're noticing it, even your own thoughts. Maybe there's a strong emotion coming up, and you're noticing it, and you're observing it, rather than wholly believing it. This is the difference between, I'm so angry, and... I'm experiencing a great amount of anger arising in my mind or in my body. The unconventional aspect of this experience is I'm not believing what my ego is telling me. And the the only thing I'm not believing is that in this moment, anger is all I am. There isn't any part of me that isn't the anger or the happiness. So that's the conventional way that we normally experience our experience. Any emotion we have, any thought we have, we just experience it as this is all of what I am. Awareness creates a kind of container within which all this phenomena arises, whether it's internal or external. And there's a certain quality of holding in that. It's an innate beingness. You could think of it as something that envelops, but is also at the core. So it feels like it's centered, and yet it includes all things. Everything's included. The Theravada vehicle of Buddhism would tell you that you need to not have anger arising. That is the goal. They will say that you want to purify the mind, so the anger doesn't arise at all. But we all know that that's not possible, right? So the middle ground, the middle way of that perspective is, well, anger is going to arise, but can you be there in order to avert its expression in the world? 
That is the ultimate Theravada perspective for how to skillfully be with negative emotions. The Dzogchen perspective is a bit different because in Dzogchen, that difficult emotion or that difficult thought essentially arises from the innate luminosity of mind, which is beyond all difficulty and non-difficulty. At its core, it is just awareness. So if it comes up, there's no reason to reject it. There's no reason to want it. There's no reason to fear it. It's just something that arises in the field of awareness. And therefore, like all things that arise, it arises and it passes on its own. And there is no clinging whatsoever. What there is, is there is vigilant mindfulness. So in this way, we're sort of, and I actually, this is why I'm staying with your beautiful question, is because I'm about to read a section out of one of Ajahn Amro's books, which talks exactly about this from both of these perspectives. From my point of view, the issue is not um, the awareness that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's the gateway to that awareness. And what is the gateway in, the in gateway your The gateway of that experience? awareness is to be able to slow down and let the awareness work. I mean, it, it's so easy to just respond in the in the old-fashioned way. Yes. I mean, I feel like I'm struggling with how to have more of, more of the awareness that that's what's going on and to use it in a, in a I don't know, a, to, to make it more part of my life. Yes. You know, it's like, I don't know, kind of like what, strengthening a muscle or something like that. That is exactly what it is. You're right. And so, as I said, aware, the innate awareness is always there because all it is, believe it or not, is that which illuminates phenomena. That's it. Your capacity to know is the innate nature of mind. That's it. That capacity to know is, already, is always there. Whether you are awake in it, whether you are there for the, you recognizing that you are knowing, that is the key. And this is what you're talking about in terms of the slowing down. All the vehicles of Buddhism, every single one of them, ascribes to vigilant mindfulness. And this is a very specific term. Uh, I don't know which, whether you have any knowledge of this, but Shantideva in his The Way of the Bodhisattva, he has an entire chapter called Vigilant Mindfulness because it was so important for him. So vigilant mindfulness is an effortful, and this is effortful, an effortful, deliberate intention to remain awake and aware in all of your waking moments. Now, whether or not you're awake and aware in all of your <laughs> waking moments is debatable, but the intention to be awake and aware in all of your waking moments is something you can deliberately bring to your life when you need it. And sometimes you could do this prophylactically. Let's say you know you're about to go into, a, well, Thanksgiving is coming up, right? Let's say you're about to go into a tricky family situation. <laughs> so you can sit in your vehicle and you can 
call up some beautiful loving kindness for yourself, right? May I be awake and aware to my own responses during Thanksgiving dinner. You've set an intention. May I not beat myself up if I am human and something slips from my mouth unintentionally or through unawareness. May I still recognize with compassion that I am a human being and I make mistakes. So it's a continual process of reinvigorating your intention. I highly recommend Philip's book, Chaos to Clarity. So I highly recommend this book as a really beautiful guidebook for how to be attentive about and vigilant about your mindfulness. And another great way to slow down is through the body. How's my body feeling right now? Is my heart racing? Are my thoughts racing? Your thoughts are your body, by the way. So you pay attention and you deliberately, kindly, with a lot of compassion, you attend to the physical well-being of your entire psychophysical system. That slows a person down a lot. Any of those things helpful to you? I you, know them all. You, you know them all. I still lose it occasionally. <laughs> but I'm telling you, losing it occasionally is human. And, and what I want you to do when you lose it is I want you to smile at your entire psychophysical system. Smile. Embrace it. Don't generate hatred. If you generate hatred, you will just go down, down, down into this horrible place of self-loathing that isn't good for anybody, especially you. So you have to embrace your humanness. When you're in a situation and you're, you have your intentions and you're looking at the situation and someone says to you or looks at you and they see your face and all of the expressions in your face yes. and that they say, well, what's wrong? Yes. Is there something wrong there when they're saying wrong? it? Yeah. But is there something wrong? No, well, yes, you're angry and you're trying to deal with the anger or yeah. disappointment or whatever. Okay. So there's, you're recognizing that all of these are there and you can see it. Yes. And you're, I think that the compassion certainly does help to, to smooth it out. But yes. still, the other person is looking at you and seeing what's wrong, Yes. or that there is something wrong, and then they're almost coaxing you to react. Okay, so I could reframe that. Here you are, you're in your observer consciousness, right? You're recognizing anger's arising in you because of what's happening between you and another person. You are at the same time attentive enough to see that they're getting this really, really difficult expression on their face because they can see that you're upset. At that moment, there is no difference between you and them. And if you think there is, you are living the subject-object delusion. So you have a choice. You can recognize your own delusion, and you can recognize that there's another being in front of you who is also suffering. The two of you are suffering. So you could be the savior for both of you. You could basically open your heart to yourself in that moment. And you could say, wow, this hurts. This is really hard. And you could look at them and you could say, 
This is so hard, and I can see that it's hard for you too. What can we do to make this easier for each other? Now, every single one of those steps is a Buddhist intervention. This is what I call kind recognition. And I make a distinction. I don't like the word acceptance. I never have. Because it usually my patients think it means agreement whenever anybody says it. So I use the term kind recognition. The first level of compassion is kind recognition of the difficulty. Wow, this is hard. That's a compassionate act. Wow, this is hard. And the reason that that is healing is because you've just dropped from your reactive brain here to the front of your brain, which is the moral center and the seat of self-awareness. And now you've dropped into what we call emotional vulnerability. When you do that, I know it, it, some people think that if they become vulnerable with someone in a situation like this, they're going to get pounced on, they're going to get hurt. In fact, what it does is it actually encourages vulnerability in the other person. Now, they may not be as vulnerable as you, but chances are they are they're probably going to become open just a little bit. And the two of you together can invite teaming up and problem-solving whatever was actually going on. And then, of course, that's a window into wisdom. Hi, I just want to ask if, wow, this is hard. Is, yeah. this, is the subject, is the title of one of your chapters? And whether or not you could write an essay, like an op-ed for the, for the Times or something, called, wow, this, no, really, the implications of wow, this is hard instead of the blow-up Actually, would be huge. And this time of year, all kinds of articles about family dynamics and Thanksgiving are coming out. But wow, this is hard is such a different perspective. That's a good idea. Maybe you should write the article. <laughs> I'm kind of in love with the word cultivating. Oh, me too. When I say having, when I think about having the intention to be visual, vigilantly mindful, mm-hmm. I kind of go into despair. Yeah, I know. I was just sitting there going into despair. Good, so let me avert your but, despair. No, but if I say, I'm going to cultivate that gives me a power. So you can definitely go that route, but I want to relieve your despair. No, I'm on, no, no, but even without cultivating. Right. Okay, so the process looks like this for vigilant mindfulness. You hold the intention, but you hold it lightly. If you hold it like it's going to leave you any minute, you're going to end up with a totally stressed nervous system. Hold the intention knowing that intentions come and go. Everything's impermanent. You follow through in that you are maintaining awareness only in so much as your intention is deliberate. There's the effort. There's that initial effort of wake up, notice, and then you let go and you just rest in awareness itself. This is going to completely divert your despair because resting in awareness is the most phenomenally wonderful thing that could ever happen to anybody. As long as you realize that the resting is also going to come and go and you are going to have to reinvigorate your intention. Well, you laugh, but this is the way it is. You're going to reinvigorate your intention You'll apply the vigilant mindfulness, and as soon as you're there and aware, try it right now. 
Okay, try it right now. Don't, don't switch your position. I mean, come on, leave your eyes open, okay? It's all, all your five senses. Open up your five senses right now. Just set the intention to experience as much as you can right now on, of all of your five senses. Yeah, just open up. As soon as you're seeing, hearing, feeling, let go. Just let go and hang out in it. And you'll probably start to notice the fluidness, the shifting of things coming and going. If you stay noticing fluidness, eventually the background awareness is actually going to become more prominent for you, just on its own. As you rest in the experience of the phenomena flowing, you just do it. And if you need to reinvigorate embodying your senses, just do it. Open up to your senses again. Once you're there, seeing, hearing my voice, feeling your body, let go and just hang out in the experience of it. Just hang. Even those silly thoughts that come and go, let them come and go. As long as you're, as Laura beautifully said, in witness consciousness, (coughs) observing them, doesn't matter if they come and go. There's no such thing as thoughtless. Yeah, there is formless. Yes, there is mind without thought. But believe me, that's something people cling to. That's not enlightenment. Full wakefulness, that's undelusion. Or non-delusion, as you may. So what was that like? Despairing? Hard? (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. Why? What was wonderful? Just easy. Just easy. Yeah. So this is it. This is is effortless mindfulness. But you have to have effortful mindfulness before you can have effortless mindfulness. (laughs) No, I'm serious. You do. You have to apply the effort to be mindful. But once you're there, let go. You're there. And don't expect it to last. Nothing lasts. So then you just apply the effort again. I'm back here. I'm in. Good. Let me hang out. I'm here. As long as hanging out lasts. So this is how you apply vigilant mindfulness without despair and without exhaustion. You're vigilantly remembering that we are human beings with the capacity to be mindful. Yeah? And what a joy it is to be mindful. Ah, such a joy. And when you're not mindful, you just invigorate mindfulness. And once you've got it, let go. Hang out. This is actually the Dzogchen methodology, by the way. But the truth is, as Ajahn Amaro says, and this, this is from Ajahn Amaro's book. It's called Small, Mount, Small Boat, Great Mountain. And you can download it for free off the internet. It's a PDF. Ajahn Chah would explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. Ajahn Chah was one of the great Theravada teachers in Thailand, for those of you who don't know. It's flowing, yet it's still. He would use the word chitta for the knowing mind, the mind of awareness. The chitta itself is totally still. It has no movement. 
It is not related to all that arises and ceases. It is silent and spacious. Mind objects, sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and emotions flow through it. Problems arise because the clarity of the mind gets entangled with sense impressions. By contemplating our own experience, we can make a clear distinction between the mind that knows, chitta, and the sense impressions that flow through it. By refusing to get entangled with any sense impressions, and by the way, this does not mean that you leave the world, okay? That is the wrong interpretation of this teaching. By refusing to get entangled with any sense impressions, we find refuge in that quality of stillness, silence, and spaciousness, which is the mind's own nature. This is not Dzogchen. This is Ajahn Amaro, one of the great Theravada forest, Thai forest tradition teachers, okay? This is why Joseph Goldstein said it's one dharma. This policy of non-interference allows everything and is disturbed by nothing. The natural ability to separate mind, or mind essence, to use the Dzogchen terminology, and mind objects is clearly reflected in the Pali language. There are two different verbs meaning to be, and they correspond to the conventional or conditioned and to the unconditioned. The verb hoti refers to that which is conditioned and passes through time. These are the common activities and labels of various sense impressions that we use regularly and for the most part unconsciously. The second verb, ati, refers to the transcendental qualities of beingness. Beingness in this case does not imply a becoming, the world of time or identity. It reflects the unconditioned, unmanifest nature of mind. That's a Dzogchen statement if I ever heard one, but this is a Theravadan teacher saying it. So he continues, in order to discover the place of non-abiding, we have to find a way of letting go of the conditioned, the world of becoming. We need to recognize the strong identification we have with our bodies and personalities, with all of our credentials, and with how we take it all as inarguable truth. That which you take as inarguable truth, your identity, is not actually your identity. It's a process of identification that's continually shifting and changing, or seemingly not. (laughs) But... In the background of all of that is the identitylessness of the innate nature of your awareness, that pristine, luminous mind which knows all things, which illuminates all things. So I have to stop because we've come to the end of our time. (laughs) But uh, I want to thank all of you for your kind attention and your amazing, amazing contributions and questions this week and last week. It was a lot of fun. And I'm sure I'll see you again in 2014 at some point. So best wishes to all of you.